Well, there were several men in a locker club, at a, a golf club, a locker room rather, and a cell phone rang on the bench, and so a man picked it up. It was one of the hands-free speaker function, and they began to talk, and everyone in the room was listening. The man said, hello. Hi, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? Yes. Well, I'm at a shop, and I just found this beautiful leather coat. It's only 2000 Is it okay if I get it? Well, if you really like it, go ahead. And then she said, well, I also stopped by the Lexus dealership and saw the new models, and I saw really, really one that I liked. How much? At uh, 90000 Okay, but for that price, I hope it has all the options. And the woman said, great. And one more thing, I just was talking to Jamie and found out that that house that I really wanted is back on the market for 980000 Obviously, this is not a club that any of us got to. <laughs> Preface that at this point. <clears throat> Anyways, um, so she said, you know, I really want to get it. And he said, well, okay, if that's what you really want. And she said, all right, I love you so much, and hung up. And the man said, bye. And after you hang up, all the men in the locker room were sitting there with their mouths hanging open, uh, wondering what in the world. And he turns to them and said, does anybody know whose phone this is? <laughs> relate to the frustrating experience it is when you learn that someone has something against you and you have no idea what you've done and why they are so upset with you. And in our study today we see David reaches a point of really being exasperated with Saul's continued desire to want to kill him. We saw last week that God delivered David from Saul. The first time was through Jonathan convincing his father you can't shed the blood of an innocent man. You remember Saul vowed before the Lord, I won't, do, you know, I won't kill David. Uh, that was very short-lived. At any rate, we left Saul laying on the ground, remember, for 24 hours with his robes off. He's in the dirt. And this is get-out-of-dodge moment for David. So he takes off, and that's where we open our study today. And David fled from Naoth in Ramah. And came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that is he's seeking my life? Jonathan said, far from it. You will not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So why should my father hide this thing from me? It's not so. David really wants to find out once and for all what is behind this passion Saul has to kill him. And maybe if he understands why or something he's done, he can deal with the problem and correct it. He had never acted in rebellion towards any of the king's commands to him. He hadn't broken any of God's laws, but Saul was still determined to kill him. David had seen firsthand the irrational anger and envy and rage that Saul had. Was he missing something? Had he done something Saul that, that was he was unaware of? If he could figure out a reason, maybe he could address it and be able to understand Saul's behavior better. So his true friend Jonathan was the person he turned to in this crisis. And yet Jonathan seems to be completely unaware that his father had yet again planned to kill David. It makes me think that perhaps after the vow was made by his dad, that he went off on some type of business trip or something and isn't aware of the three other times that uh, Saul tries to kill David. So at this point, he's like, no, you know, my dad tells me everything. I would know if that was what was going on. 
So David doesn't have that same confidence in his dad. <clears throat> Obviously, his father had done, had said nothing to da uh, Jonathan about the scheme, so David did not share the same confidence that his friend Jonathan had. Verse 3 says, Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is about a step between me and death. David wants the truth to come out. He will be forced to leave the service of Saul, and he wants Jonathan to see and know the truth of his father's real intentions. So that brings them to a test to give Saul to understand his real plans. So David proposes this test, and as was the custom, Jewish families would hold a feast to celebrate the new moon each month, and there would be a sacrificial meal, and there was both a religious and uh, civil festival that went on according to Numbers 10 and Numbers 28. It just so happened that the very next day was the new moon, so that became part of the whole plan to test Saul. David knew his family would uh, be planning their own meal and reunion, and it coincided with the celebration, so that seemed like a logical uh, way to go. David also knew that Saul would have the same type of feast and all of his cabinet would be expected to be there at the meal. David was the king's son-in-law. David was the top military commander of Saul. <clears throat> and he, it would be assumed that he would be attending, even though, really? You know, you've just been trying to kill him, but all right. That's, this is protocol. This is what you're supposed to do. So the reaction of Saul to David not being there is the test to see what he really is going to do if, if David's in danger. If Saul understood that David's been excused and he's okay with it, then David needs to not be afraid. However, should Saul become angry, that's the final proof that David needs to get away and run for his life. So this certainty was a convenient, uh, this, it was a convenient time to do this test. However, the problem with this test is that it required Jonathan to lie to Saul. David was not going to be with his family for a meal in Bethlehem. Rather, David's hiding behind a large rock in a field, <laughs> waiting. So, as is so often the case, the wrong of this lie is just not addressed in Scripture. It's just stated, this is what happened. So in verse 8, as these plans are being made, David appeals to Jonathan and explains why he had turned to him. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? So this is a reference back to the covenant that we saw last time we studied in chapter 18. David knew he could trust Jonathan uh, to act with kindness because of the covenant that they spoke that they had. It was a covenant of loyal love that was promised before God. And though the gay community has often taken this relationship between David and Jonathan uh, to be a reference to their lifestyle and a validation for it, nothing could be further from the truth. Just as the fact that God created the rainbow as a promise he'd never destroy the world by a flood again, and the rainbow has become the banner for this community as well, it has nothing to do with anything biblical. And so it is, these were devoted friends um, and there's no implication of something sensual about their friendship. They are two comrades and warriors devoted to one another. 
There was an unfailing confidence in their loyalty to each other. Scripture, you know, it, it never hides sin. It always speaks very honestly about everyone's sin and addresses it. <clears throat> and there is nothing sensual spoken of about their friendship. They were married men. They had children. But like fellow Marines today who have been to war together, there was an undying faithfulness to each other and a love for them. And I have your back and I'll watch out for your family too. So there had been a covenant made before God, and therefore David knew he could come to Jonathan without any fear. David knew he could depend on this covenant love that his dear friend had for him. Of course, it is God and his great covenant love that we are reminded of here, because God is faithful. He will keep his promises to Israel, and he will keep his promises to the church. I realize that most of Christendom does not believe that or accept that. They feel Israel blew it, and they're out of the picture altogether. But you have to really twist all of Scripture and make it mean something else to come away with that. God will keep his promises to Israel, Romans 9 through 11, and he will keep his promises to the church. So David ran uh, to his most trusted, dependable friend, knowing he would be treated with such covenant kindness. Jonathan and David then reaffirmed their vows to one another in 12 through 17, as well as to their descendants. Jonathan speaks and reviews the covenant that was made in chapter 18. And Jonathan then makes an oath to David here in verse 12 that he will warn David should he find out that his father planned to kill him. Jonathan was at peace with the truth that God wanted David to be the next king of Israel. Even though this meant Jonathan, the rightful one from a human perspective, would not be the king. Jonathan speaks about their covenant into the future. He knew David would be the king one day, and he praised the Lord would bless him in his reign. Jonathan would be right there to serve David and be loyal to him when he became the king. Should anything happen, though, to Jonathan, again, he refers back to the covenant that David would then be kind to his household. And that actually will be fulfilled in 2 Samuel 9, when David pursues to find any living family member that he can protect. And he does so with Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. So in verse 17, it reads, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Jonathan may have been at peace with the plan that God was going to have David the next king, but his dad sure wasn't. Saul was going to react with such hatred towards his own son because of his devotion to his friend David. So that brings us to archery practice. This is communication. We have no texting. We have no radio contact. But every warrior would be practicing all of the time to keep up his skills. And so he went and decided that they would use an archery time of practicing shooting arrows. And that would be the way they would communicate the result of the test. So if the arrow, he overshot it, and the youth that was with him to gather his uh, arrows was there and, and saw, uh, Jonathan said, just, it's gone too far past you, let it go, then David would know that his father-in-law wanted to kill him. So the test would be given the next three evenings, and that brings us to verse 24 through 29. David's hiding in response to find out what did the empty seat uh, what did that create at the dinner table that, the next few nights? Apparently, the king didn't seem too bothered by the first meal David missed. After all, it wasn't uncommon to be ceremonially unclean. 
read Leviticus and you think, how could anybody? There's so much stuff, I don't know. But anyway, so he excused it in his own mind. And Saul, we read, sat by a wall with a spear. I really think he kept that spear in his hand all the time. Really, I, I mean, really, that's real brief. Next week, it's, it's always there to hurl. So he must be left-handed or right-handed, whichever. Food's in one hand, spear's in the other. However, when the second night came around and David is still missing, now Saul says to Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? He doesn't even call David by his name. Uh, the moment of truth has arrived. I'm sure Jonathan has rehearsed this next section many times in his mind, what he's going to say. And so he says, well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I found favor in your sight, please let me get, uh, get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he hasn't come to the king's table. A logical, uh, understandable uh, excuse, and the fact that Jonathan excused him that it was okay. But I'm sure the tension at that moment was unbelievable. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a... Well, you know, if it was in English or <laughs> lingo, it would be a different set of words. Anyways, but same thought. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame? to the shame of your mother's nakedness for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth neither you nor your kingdom will be established therefore now send and bring him to me he must surely die but Jonathan answered Saul's father and said why should he be put to death what has he done then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down so Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger, and he was grieved because David, uh, over David because his father had so dishonored him. So you can feel the terror in this moment in this dining room, and instantly it's Jonathan experiencing the wrath and rage of his father. We're reminded in this scene how irrational anger behaves when it controls your mind. While screaming at his son for in essence being so stupid to not see through the fact that David is gonna end up being the next king instead of Jonathan, yet with the same breath he's hurling his spear at the son, Jonathan, to kill him. The one he's so enraged with for not seeing the danger that Jonathan will lose the throne. If he wanted his son to be the king so badly, then it was insane that he's thrown a spear to kill the son who is supposed to be on the throne. I think each of us can relate to times in our lives where we have said hurtful, cruel, venomous, harsh words of anger to those that we say that we love. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of those kinds of words. It's such a great reminder, ladies, because you know what? You can't get them back. Once they're out there, they're out there. You can pursue forgiveness and restoration and, and reconciliation, and hopefully that happens if you humble yourself. But even with that, those people will never forget what you said. Hopefully they won't hold it against you, but they will never forget. 
Once hurtful words are said, the damage is done. It's such a reminder of, of James chapter 3. And the tongue is a fire in the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. These things ought not to be this way. Saul saw Jonathan's concern for David as betrayal. And so in this frenzy of anger, he throws his spear at his own son. You know, resentment, jealousy, anger, rage, all those things, they're all cousins and produce one another. But they find ways to be expressed, don't they? Sometimes it's the volcano exploding verbally. Other times there is shaking, there is grabbing, there is all kinds of things that go on. It finds a way to be expressed. Jesus said, you know what, what's in your heart? That's what comes out of your mouth because that's who you really are and that's the rottenness really in your wicked heart. Well, Saul continued uh, to let his heart be ruled by his hatred and anger and resentment of David. He speaks of his own son in the lowest of the lows. He mocks his wife and condemns his son, saying he must be the offspring, really, of a prostitute. That's what he's saying. He considers Jonathan the type of son who would expose his own mother's nakedness. In other words, you are no son of mine. You are scum. Saul is consumed with his own preservation of being king of Israel, yet he's already been told by the Lord clearly from Samuel, this kingdom I've torn away from you for your rebellion and your defiance of me. But in anger, instead of being angry about his own sin and being humbled in repentance, now he just feeds his anger. It's everybody else's fault. This is David's fault. So all that unforgiveness, all that resentment, you know, ladies, it warps how you think. It is the lens from which you view the rest of your life and the events of your life when you have unforgiveness in your heart. So don't ever be deceived to think that you would never stoop as low as someone like Saul. Because the truth is, our hearts are desperately wicked and capable of the most hurtful and evil words and actions. Sin that is unrepented of leads to more sin and more wrong thinking and more rationalization and justification of it, bringing absolute destruction to marriages, destruction to father-children, mother-children relationships, other family relationships, church fellow member relationships, and on and on. Well, I think this test was pretty clear. There's no gray here, right? I mean, this was a black and white answer. This, you know, the spear got hurled. He gets it. Jonathan gets it. His dad wants to kill David. Jonathan escapes with his own life, and he is angry at his father. And it's amazing. His anger isn't focused on the fact that his father just threw a spear at him. He's really more angry that he would dishonor the top warrior, the most, the man who gave the most for this country. And, and want to kill David. So that brings us to their final farewell in verses 35 to 42. Jonathan certainly knew that Saul was being, maybe having him watched. So Jonathan did his routine, bring the lad with to the archery practice, and David's waiting by the rock to hear the words, and he heard the dreaded words, don't bother, it's too far, I overshot the arrow. And then the, the lad is sent home with all of his gear. 
and a very sad moment of time. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and they wept together. And David wept more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went to the city. I mean, Jonathan went home. Jonathan went back to his career. He went back to his lunatic father as well. But you realize David had nothing, nowhere to go. If you've ever had to say a very difficult farewell to someone, you know the pain and sadness of this friendship at this moment. Nothing is ever going to be the same again. It never will. They have to go their separate ways with no knowledge of whether they'll see each other again and under what circumstances. Two valiant warriors, not afraid to cry. They would never go to war side by side. They would never um, do the, the battles for their people and their God again. David is now exiled, forced to leave the people he loved and the people he served. Before leaving, he humbly bows down three times before the prince of Israel, Jonathan, out of great respect for this friend. Then with broken hearts and many, many tears, they embraced and kissed each other's cheeks farewell. Our culture says such behavior is a sign of weakness among men. In their culture, that was not a sign of weakness. Men were not afraid to talk and express their grief. Neither knew the future, but they did know they would be faithful to the covenant they made with their God and to each other, and in that they could take comfort. Well, that leads us to the final chapter of our study, and this is the life of David on the run. Tough life. David realizes he can't go home, can't go to Jerusalem. He's separated. He's a fugitive for doing nothing wrong, and so he's on the run. Um, he has no idea about what he's about to endure. But, you know, we're such a beneficiary group of ladies here today for all that David goes on to suffer. Because all that he penned was to be there for our, inspir our comfort when we face similar circumstances. And how he responded, how he dealt with it, is what gives us comfort and hope as well. We're blessed to study these next uh, chapters because they give us the background of so much of the songs David wrote. So the military strength of Israel now lies completely in the control of Saul. Not only is David a fugitive, but now he's considered an outlaw. He is probably about 20 years old at this time that he's driven away, and this is a difficult time, and it's going to last about 10 years. Isn't it great that we don't know how long a trial is going to last? You know, that first day, that first week, that first month? Okay, <laughs> I'm hanging in there. And that's uh, a blessing the Lord doesn't show us the future. At any rate, we see in chapters 21 through 26. Oh, by the way, we know this because um, David became king when he was 30 in Hebron. So like 10 years passed, Saul dies. David becomes king uh, initially of a smaller part of the country. So in chapters 23, 23 or verses, yeah, chapters 21 through 26, we are given the events that happened during this long period of time. So we're just given a sprinkling of events. As was said before, many of the Psalms that we love were penned by David as he ran for his life. And we've been so blessed by these Psalms. As the Lord ministered to David, so he will minister to you and I through the scriptures. And I love Psalm 34. You know, in Psalm 56, we quote many of those verses. We know little segments of them, but knowing where they came out of makes it so much more special, I think. 
So David uh, heads for the city of Nob to meet his immediate needs. This was a city where the priests were now, on the top of Mount Scopus, if you've ever been there, and about a mile north of Jerusalem. So they had moved from Shiloh, apparently, to this location now, and this is where the tabernacle appears to be kept. David often references his love for the worship of the sanctuary of the Lord. Unarmed with no food or shelter and probably looking a bit ragged, uh, David has decided he's going to go see what he can get at Nob from the priest. So Ahimelech, a great-grandson of Eli, is David's contact. Some say he's the brother of Ahijah. Others say these are the two, men, or two names of the same man. What do I know? At any rate, 1 Samuel 14.3 was a time when Ahijah is wearing the ephod and in the service of Saul. Same names of the relatives and so on. I remind you that when God judged Eli back in chapter 2 that we studied, God said, Yet I will cut off every man of yours, Eli, from my altar so that your eyes will fail and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. So it's been taking a lot of years to get to the end of that judgment by God. But it is coming. David decided to come up with a plan of his own to get what he needed. I don't know how much prayer went into this plan, as once again, he uses deception. When David arrived at Nob, Ahimelech comes out trembling like, why are you alone and no one with you? <clears throat> so David uh, wants to quickly assure everything's okay. Uh, it certainly seemed odd to the priest that David showed up all alone with nothing. And so David is quick to say, oh, I'm on a really top secret mission. I left so quick, couldn't even grab anything. And so David came up with this quick lie. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David, there, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have been kept themselves from women. So this priest realized David was hooking up with other men and he didn't want him to be giving this very special consecrated bread to men who were unceremonially uh, clean. So David's like, no, no, that's okay. The only bread available was this bread set apart for the tabernacle to be eaten by the priests, Exodus 24 and 25. It's amazing that Jesus speaks about this particular incident in Mark and in Matthew, and really to, to show and justify that uh, David and his companions did nothing wrong. They were in dire straits. David needed food. He absolutely needed food for sustenance. And after all, the Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for man's benefit so that you have a day of rest. It's not the other way around so that you keep a bunch of rules. So the holy bread or the bread of the presence was set on the table in the holy place of the tabernacle, 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel that God had made a covenant with. And when they had placed the discarded loaves were then eaten, when they replaced the twelve, then the discarded loaves were eaten by the priests. But this exception was made as David needed food badly. So mercy comes before ceremony. They've also asked for any weapons that might be available, and there just happened to be Goliath's sword. That had to be huge. I mean, traveling-wise, that had to be an extra challenge. So, at any rate, uh, if this were a, a movie right now, it would stop. The music would get dark and really scary. And there would be this really scary-looking guy. 
as we read, now one of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Why this is included here becomes key to what we will see next week. This proves to be a very ominous moment. And David saw him, and he saw David, and he saw what David was doing. We aren't given the reason why Doeg was detained by the Lord that day. What's he doing there anyway? He's an Edomite. Do you come across the light? We just aren't told. But he is there nonetheless, and he sees what is going on. He is a very dubious man and a vicious man, which we will soon see. And God could have kept this man detained elsewhere, but instead he saw David speak to the priest and get help. His name, uh, Doeg, was a chief for Saul. Chief could be translated also the strong one. Well, he was a strong one. David has no time to linger. Just store it in the brain. Uh-oh, that guy was there, and he's off and running. And that brings us to this crazy story that he flees to Gath. I mean, he must have been so afraid of Saul at this point. So he goes to Gath, you know, enemy territory. And he finds himself in front of their king. He had traveled 23 to 30 miles to this enemy city, hometown of Goliath. He cut his head off. This would not be a, a people group that would appreciate seeing you. <laughs> so he has the sword of Goliath with him. I can't help but wonder if it had a big G on it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it had to be ginormous, made from Goliath. So perhaps his immediate thoughts are simply to escape Saul, um, and so he goes to a place Saul would never expect to find him, or chase him too. So he goes to Gath. And it's the advisors of the king that recognize David immediately, and apparently they know, everybody knows the jingle, the little Jewish song. So <laughs> this lane is thousands, and David, ten thousand. And so they, they know the song, you know, they're the enemy, everybody knows the song. They, they remind the king, this is the guy, he's the ten thousands guy. And so at that moment, David is fearful. And he did the first thing that popped into his mind, which was, I'll act insane. And so he starts acting crazy, drooling, scribbling on the walls, you know, acting mad. And, and the king's response was, get this guy out of here. We have enough madmen in Gath. We don't need one from another country. So as you saw in your lesson today, Psalm 34 and 56 were both written after this particular event in David's life. And we read that David sought the Lord's help and then writes these hymns of deliverance from his trouble and from his fear. Obviously, David was afraid at that moment, but the Lord sustained him and the Lord delivered him from his trouble. David speaks of the slander of the Philistine leaders in Psalm 56. However long he was held in custody there, David learned that the fear of the Lord conquers every other fear. The Lord showed mercy to David and helped him escape from Gath. It was not the quick wit of David or his excellent acting skills that brought safety to him. It was the Lord. God is merciful even when we do something foolish. God, David learned that truth. I hope that you've learned that truth too. We are to bless the Lord at all times. His praise is to be continually in our mouth. Deceptive schemes are not the solution. David said, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. And God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? He also wrote and said, the Lord has put my tears in a bottle. Are they not all in your book? I want to know the Lord the way David 
knew the Lord with such intimacy and trust. David wanted to as well uh, walk with his Lord. And, you know, the only way David was going to grow in trust, grow in faith, grow in prayer, is by being in the fire. And that's what the next years of his life would be. David experienced the reality that he wrote about in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And he reminds himself, this has such new meaning now. I, I mean, I know this verse, but I never thought about it in the context of what led up to it. David says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Like I've been doing, you know? So the reason we find such comfort from the Psalms like these is because of all that David suffered. All the inhumane, unjust treatment, all the, the heartache, all the pain. God was faithful and kind. So my prayer is for each of us to know the Lord with the same type of in intimacy and dependence that David knew the Lord. David's faithful God is the same God that we can know today and that's been made possible through the death of Jesus Christ, paying the sin debt that we deserve to be punished for, taking our place. And when we repent, recognize how rotten and guilty and sinful we are, and turn to Jesus alone for forgiveness and trust him. He will wipe away our sin. Jesus took the wrath of God for your sin and mine so that we can be free to have this kind of intimacy with God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. You don't hold back anything that men and women, men who, David, a man after your own heart, and yet we see how many times he blew it, and yet he did want to serve you. He did want to do what is right. And I pray we would learn from him and learn from these inspired accounts that we would be obedient to your word, Lord. pray if there's any lady here who doesn't know you, that you will open her eyes to understand the truth of the gospel, that your death was on behalf of sinners so that we could be forgiven by a holy God. And Lord, I pray for any ladies here as well who have maybe been sucked into the sin of Saul, of holding in resentment and justifying anger and all of the evil that comes out of the mouths and the thought life when we are dominated by that sin. I pray that you would bring conviction of sin and that there would be true repentance to see how offensive our speech is to a holy God when we sin like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you.